Welcome to another episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper with your hosts, Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond and Lucy Hounsom. This week, we are joined by YA author Samantha Shannon, who recently spoke out against a blog post by private school teacher Graham Whiting. In the post, Whiting argues that reading fantasy, particularly dark fantasy, is damaging to the minds of young readers. Before we get into it, I'd like to introduce Samantha Shannon to our listeners. Samantha, would you like to say a little bit about yourself? Um, I'm Samantha Shannon. I'm the author of the Bone Season series, and I also have a another fantasy book called The Priory of the Orange Tree coming out at an unspecified time because I haven't finished it yet. Um, I'm working on book four in the Bone Season series at the moment. Uh, what else about me? Um, I'm based in London. Um, I've been writing since I was about 12 or 13. Yeah, that's about it, I think. <laughs> Yes, you're one of these uh, wonderful writers who's very young and so successful that I have to actually hate you because <laughs> I'm just too jealous of all Get your in success. Line, Megan. Get in line. <laughs> but yeah, you've done fantastically well and, you know, you. kudos to you. Thanks so much. So um, we wanted to talk to you after reading your Guardian article um, responding to Graham Whiting, the head teacher who was speaking out against, well, uh, sort of saying that children shouldn't be reading fantasy and horror and such because it will hurt their brains, their delicate minds. Yeah. So what is it that uh, specifically made you want to speak out about this head teacher and, and his blog post? Well, I saw an article on it and I think I either retweeted or posted it with some slightly intemperate comments. I may have used some strong language. Um, and basically kind of a lot of people in the industry picked up on it. And uh, I made some comments on Twitter and The Guardian asked me if I'd like to write a comment piece about it. Um, I thought someone should probably say what seemed to be the general consensus in the industry, so I accepted. Um, my main point in the comment piece was that Whiting said that writers like Shakespeare, and I quote, will still be read in future years by those children whose parents adopt a protective attitude towards ensuring that dark demonic literature carefully sprinkled with ideas of magic, of control and of ghostly and frightening stories that will cause the children who read them to seek for ever more sensational things to add to those they've already been exposed to. Oh my God, that was a long sentence. <laughs> um, I basically, I my main thing I did in the article was I used the rape of Lavinia in Titus Andronicus to indicate that there is a great deal of darkness in writers like Shakespeare. And it's also worth noting that ideas of magic, as he said and criticised, are heavily sprinkled throughout Shakespeare's works, particularly in The Tempest. Uh, so it seemed to me that he was just advocating for literature that he personally enjoyed. And he also made this silly comment about how people can, you know, it's a wonder that people can buy fantasy books without a licence, which just seemed like it needed responding to. So, yeah, that was the, the rationale behind my comment piece. If it feels very strange to have someone talk about these things and say you know the dark and the fantastical is is really damaging to the young minds and quoting things like Shakespeare because as you say there's a lot of that in it I mean some of the creepiest things I I mean still the Tempest for me is one of the creepiest things ever that may be slightly because I've seen Prospero's books and the 1970s version of the Tempest with a lot of um homoerotic undertones. Oh, really? I haven't seen it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, Ariel runs around in a, like a, a tiny little gold underpants, and it, it's interesting. <laughs> Sounds very interesting. Well, I remember at school sitting out with one of my friends because um, she didn't like violence so much, and we were asked to watch for English 
uh, was at GCSE or A level at that point. Um, Roman Polanski's version of Macbeth, I think it was. I mean, Roman Polanski doesn't necessarily make you know very child-friendly films, and there's quite a lot in in that story in particular that you know could, would really lend itself and appeal to someone like Roman Polanski. And yet he's saying that this is more um, suitable for children than say something like uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit or or something like that. Yeah, and I even said in the article, I said, you know, I, the the rape of Lavinia is is so violent and awful, and I try, I couldn't find a similar instance of violence in Harry Potter. I said probably when Wormtail cuts his own hand off in the Goblet of Fire, that was probably about as close as I could come to that level of grotesqueness, and it still wasn't anywhere near like seeing Lavinia without her tongue and with her hands cut off and having been raped. Well, do you think it's perhaps to do with the fact that? In Shakespeare, yes, there's a lot of violence, but it's all reported in speech. You don't actually have any descriptions of it. You have people reporting back on it. Whereas if you're actually writing a piece of fiction rather than a play, you've got to actually physically describe it to try and conjure it up in people's minds. I mean, maybe that's the, the distinction he objects to. And if you had The Hobbit written as a stage play instead, he wouldn't have necessarily objected to that. He would have gone, oh, it's a lovely jaunt in the countryside with a few dragons look. <laughs> I did I did think that to some extent and I guess it's kind of the distinction between film and books as well like why we have uh, certificates on films because it's quite different actually seeing something unfold before your eyes than it is reading in a book I don't think there's a massive distinction in terms of Shakespeare because when you think about Shakespeare he's designed to be performed on the stage so although you're reading it in a book you know you'd certainly be seeing it on the stage and the stage directions you know and the and the dialogue make it pretty clear what's been done to Lavinia in Titus Andronicus. And if you were seeing it on stage, you'd certainly not be in the dark about it. So I think it's quite a, a little distinction to make. And I guess to some extent, a, a, very, a young child reading it, because of the, the nature of the language, it might be slightly lost on them because it's kind of more old-fashioned dialogue. But I think it's, I think it's quite a... It's, I, I, I would still make the point. You know, I, don't, I don't think there's a huge deal of difference, really. Um, in, in terms of the acceptable classics, do, do you think part of it is is kind of just snobbery when it comes to you know writing that is actually aimed at children or YA markets? Um, I'm not really sure. Like when I was reading it, it struck me that his problem was more to do with popular culture. So he was arguing against Tolkien, for example, and he mentioned the Lord of the Rings. And while the Hobbit is definitely more child-friendly. The Lord of the Rings doesn't instantly strike me as a children's book. So I don't think he was specifically targeting things that are written for young adults. Um, he also mentioned Game of Thrones, which I definitely don't think was written with, you know, young children, young adults in mind at all. Yeah, we, we'd hope not. <laughs> yeah, I, w I would like to hope not. <laughs> so I think, he, I think he was just targeting a number of popular books and authors and singled those out as being bad for children. But I, th I think that's kind of reflective of a general attitude in society about how things that are popular are somehow of lower quality. It's kind of like how you get called like a basic bitch if you're a woman and you like certain popular things so I think I think that is just kind of a reflection of that attitude yeah I mean science fiction fantasy horror I mean that whole realm of books tends to kind of we get a lot of slack uh, well slagging off I guess is more what I'm looking for that it's kind of somehow not as worthy as you know the the canon and other you know literary works and I which I think is absolutely ridiculous because then people will talk about things, you know, say Mary Shelley, Frankenstein, or, you know, some of these other pieces, they make it into the canon and they kind of, they categorize them differently to get them away from that, 
you know, terrible genre fiction. Well, it's kind of like, um, I recall there was a bit of controversy um, around what Kazuo Ishiguro said about the buried giant. Yes, yeah. Um, he, said, he said, I don't know what's going to happen. Will readers follow me into this? Will they understand what I'm trying to do? Or will they preju- be prejudiced against the surface elements? Are they going to say this is fantasy? And that caused some controversy and, you know, suggested that there does exist some prejudice against fantasy despite it being so popular. But I think, I mean, I've always been perplexed by the idea that sci-fi and fantasy are somehow less worthy or more frivolous than realistic fiction. To me, fantasy represents the limits of the human imagination. It's our ability to envision and conceive any circumstance in any world. And I don't see why that should be seen as absurd or punished in any way critically. And it's also worth noting that fantasy has been used for years. I mean, if you think of something like The Fairy Queen by Edmund Spencer, it's full of fantastical illusions that were specifically used to highlight things that were happening at the time. So it's, I do think that age sometimes kind of makes, it kind of dissolves our idea of genre. Like we forget that older pieces of fiction do fit into particular genres. Well, I mean, yeah, think about the, the Odyssey and the Iliad by, by Homer. I mean, we're, we're talking it thousands and thousands of years ago. You know, yeah. I mentioned like the you know, Epic of Gilgamesh and then and then you get up to Beowulf. I mean, fantasy is the oldest, if you if you can call it a genre, is the oldest genre uh, of, of any literature. So actually, yeah. you know, what we call literary fiction is brand new in comparison. Absolutely, yeah, no, I agree. I think one of the things that, you know, really um, struck me in, in Graham's um, article that he wrote was the phrase, I'm not attempting to pitch modern bestsellers against old classics, nor am I discouraging children from reading. I'm concerned with the exposure of young children's minds to things that are dark and scary. And talking about, obviously, going back to the Odyssey and, and everything that Lucy was mentioning, it brought to my mind, well, what about fairy tales, which have been around, you know, since the dawn of time? And for years, they've been used as a way for children to explore their fears, and they are deliberately given dark and scary stories so that they know what happens if you stray off the path, they know what happens if you talk to strangers or eat food that's offered to you and and things like that. And he's kind of saying, well, I don't want that kind of stuff, even though we've had it for for centuries. And I wondered if he thought, and I wondered if you guys think, that there's maybe fairy tales may be something we don't have use for in, in the modern age because, you know, you have police warnings, you have... Um, demonstrations in schools, maybe all, all of the dark, star- dark, scary stuff in uh, fantasy and horror is redundant because they're not teaching children's lessons. Now, I, I personally say I think that's rubbish. I, I think there are plenty of things children need to re- um, get from fairy tales. But I mean, I wondered what, what you guys thought of that. I mean, I think there's more of a need for it than ever. I mean, that, that never goes away because we're always going to be exposed to things that are dark and dangerous and we'll always need a safe room in which to explore our own morality and fiction provides us with that room. Well, maybe we should uh, try and get Graham Whiting on Breaking the Grass Slipper then in that case and see if he can explain (laughs) what he thinks will fulfil the role if you take away fantasy, science fiction and fairy tales. Well, I'm not sure. I mean, he seems to have this idea that you should limit children's exposure to the world, which, you know, it's to me, it just doesn't work. He he kind of in the blog post, I, I, I responded to this in my comment in The Guardian. He was kind of expressing the idea that the imagination is something that can become richer when it's protected and bound up. And to me, it needs to be fed and you need to expose it to the outside world in order for it to grow. I, I said that, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of an absurd idea that imagination can flourish, can flourish when it's locked in a cage. 
Yes, I, I actually I did really like that quote from him. So you know, buying sensational books is like feeding your child with spoons of added sugar, heaps of it, <laughs> and when the child becomes addicted, it will seek more and more, which, if related to books, fills the bank vaults of those who write unsensitive books for young children. Yes, we're terrible having our bank vaults filled. <laughs> But um, yeah, no, it's to me. To me, you need to be exposed to the world in order to respond to it and form your own opinions. And the more you see reimaginings of the world, the more you learn about real life. So you can only understand what makes our world what it is once you've seen a different one. So you can see shades of. Our current reality in the Hunger Games, for example, but there are also differences, and you can see what our world might become under different circumstances. And I think feeding children only realistic literature—if we only allow them to see the world as it currently is—would deny them that ability to make comparisons and envision how things can and have changed. Yeah, I mean that for me, um, SFF writing is so important because it can actually tackle these subjects in yeah. new and different ways. And so, one of my favorite examples is always um, Star Trek, where you had original uh, series where you had things like um, aliens with one half white and one half black face, you know, and they're warring with another culture which is exactly the same, just the the sides of their face switched over, or you know, <laughs> the fact that they had that the first uh, nationally popularized um interracial kiss on television and, and things like that and they got away with these things in kind of a, a realm that was you know tv was heavily censored at that time but they got away with it because it was in the future and they were you know doing all these things and in that way science fiction and fantasy you know we can make commentaries on these and we can get people to think outside the box a little bit and you know for me it just seemed like he was a bit worried that maybe his students would you know become too free thinking and revolutionary yeah i mean i i'm not like i i think it's i was trying to kind of puzzle through the whole meaning of his post and he kind of he talks about how there's beauty in the text and children need to see the beauty before they see the darkness or something and then he said something about beware the devil in the text that was kind of his sign off thing um so i think it's I'm not. I'm not really sure what he's so afraid of. To be honest, I, I think he seems to think that reading any kind of dark fiction or fantastical fiction is going to affect a child's ability to perceive beauty and leave some kind of lasting subconscious impression, which I don't personally understand at all. Um, I personally think fantasy is is a great engine for exploring, you know, ideas because I, I think it's probably because you're, you're not exploring particular real notions you're kind of putting them in a fantasy cloak and I think that helps kind of there I guess it allows there to be a more universal response to them I suppose yeah and, and children can use their imagination and use these kind of fantastical worlds that they can build themselves or read about to help them deal with real life gnarliness um when I, when you look at things like patrick ness and a monster calls you know the the character's dealing with his mother's death and he kind of invents this fantasy world for himself and yeah i i feel like without exposing children to those kinds of fantastical stories that's just limiting their their sort of toolbox as it were to deal with real life um trials 
I think that's a great word for it, actually, toolbox. I think that's it, it does provide you with like a toolbox of dealing with life. I mean, it's it's the same for all books. I mean, like I found um, Jacqueline Wilson's books very helpful when my parents were going through a divorce, for example. And I think, you know, fantasy is is, is, a, is great a way as, of dealing with things as any other kind of book. Well, I am, being the oldest member of Breaking the Glass Slipper, I already have a, a little girl who's four years old, and she's um, massively... Um, a massive fan of My Little Pony, the the updated version where they're all yeah. sparkly and, and thin and whatever. Um, and it's very, very positive. There's hardly any dark stuff in it at all. But I must admit, she uses that to relate to modern day situations. So we're walking down the road and we see something bad happening or we see a child being told off or something. And, and I can relate it back to the fantasy of My Little Pony going, well, you remember when Twilight Sparkle did this? And do you remember how everybody didn't like her very much? And it's it's used because she's seen all the episodes. She can kind of relate to stuff in the real world by having seen it played out in the fantasy realm of unicorns and alicorns and all that jazz. So I think I kind of see what he's saying. That sorry, that might be controversial. Seeing saying what he I see what he's saying, but I do try and shelter her to a certain extent and try to just give her positive stuff. But I'm also aware that there is darkness out there. And I'm starting to introduce her to Roald Dahl and she hasn't quite clicked on it yet, but it's just like, oh, he chopped her head off and things like that. And it's more sort of shock. Um, but I think that, you know, it's important to, to say to kids, you know, as well as having all the funds in Ponyville, actually, you know, there are people out there who chop people's heads off. And as you can see from this story, they're not very nice. And I think if I denied my child fantasy and, and all the stuff that Graham Whiting seems to be saying permanently, I think she would lack in some very valuable life lessons. Yeah, exactly. I feel like showing kids the sort of the darkness that lurks just helps them, you know, deal with bullies and things like that. Because if you say if you had a child who didn't have any awareness of sort of the darkness of reality, they go to school, find themselves bullied. What are they going to do? How do they respond to that? They've had no uh, exposure to that kind of behavior. Yeah, it's also a way of introducing things to them kind of softly before you kind of introduce them to real life situations. Like, I mean, you know, I've had my my little brother ask me about terrorism, for example, and it's it's quite difficult to explain it in all its detail and complexity to a young child. Whereas if they've seen something happen in a book that kind of mirrors it, it's it's just easier to explain it to them rather than kind of having to throw this very complex real life thing in their face which they're probably not going to immediately understand no it's just um something that i also sort of noted in um whiting's post uh, you know he was the kind of books and things that he recommended tended to be these you know the old classics tended to be written by men Mm-hmm. and they're kind of reinforcing that kind of outdated gender and social norms. And to me, I just wonder, shouldn't he be encouraging his students to be reading new voices, reading people who write now, who can talk about social issues that are relative, um, relevant now? Not that books from, from you know, whenever they were written weren't aren't relevant now, but they are, you know, dead white men, and we kind of want some diversity in there. 
Yeah, I well, think all of, I think all of the authors he recommended were men. I mean, I don't think he meant Mary Shelley when he said Shelley because her yes. stuff is pretty dark. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it's I think it's a good idea to have a, a healthy understanding of each period of history in English literature, as books are so influenced by what came before. Um, but I think it should definitely be balanced with modern contributions. I mean, in his day, Shakespeare was modern. He was a newcomer. It's only time that's made him a classic. And I mean, I studied Brick Lane by Monica Ali at school, which follows the experience of a Bangladeshi woman in London. And I found that that opened my mind at an early stage to the diversity of the city I was living in and made me think about how other people lived in the city. So I think it's important to have a mix of both and to allow young people to choose what they want to read and explore and just just show them that there's more to the world than just this very narrow view from a bunch of, you know, authors from between the kind of 16th and 19th centuries. Because although, yes, they are relevant and they were relevant at that time, there's no point in cutting out what is actually relevant right now. Well, it's interesting. One of the things I noticed in his um, little blog was that he'd said, I felt that by the age of 30, I had read all the books I wanted to read. that's his own omission and he's kind of having a go at all the current stuff and I'm like well if you'd already read them all by the time you were 30 and and you were quite happy not to read any more how can you have a a good wide appreciation of of what's currently on offer I was really surprised to read that comment um, from a teacher I mean surely people who aim to teach also strive to keep learning themselves I mean it's wonderful that he found books that he particularly enjoyed and found value in but those books may not be the ones that resonate with his pupils. And you can't say that, you know, books that he read when he was 30 are going to necessarily resonate with all of the children in his school. Well, absolutely. And I wonder exactly how aware he is of current trends and everything, because you might be able to help us on this, Samantha, but he talks about parents walking around a modern shopping centre where their children are magnetised by the colourful and graphic attraction of a new book cover. Uh, such colourful covers attract children to the point of mesmerising them and they make demands of their parents stating that they want one because every other child at school has one. And <laughs> that's not my experience of going book shopping in a, a modern mall, but I don't know, maybe it is where he goes. Uh, yeah. It doesn't sound like he's got a very good idea of what current books are marketed, unless he's just taking it all from J.K. Rowling, I suppose, who would kind of attract that kind of media attention. Well, to be honest, I mean, when when I was reading his comments about the covers, I couldn't really understand what he was saying was bad about that. I mean, there are certainly trends in cover design, but the point of the cover is to attract you to the book. That's its purpose and what it's designed by the publishing house to do. I don't see that there's a problem with having colourful or eye-catching covers, and they usually do reflect what's inside in some way. I mean, he says that very little of the text is reflected in the beautiful and attractive cover. I mean, my experience is that the books, the covers often do mirror what's inside the book. I mean, that is, you know, they're supposed to hint at what's inside. And I don't like the idea that a book being a beautiful object is somehow a bad thing. And I'm not totally sure why he thinks it is. And it's also great for children to be able to share their love of a particular book with their peers. And he's kind of saying that, you know, they make demands to their parents stating that they want one because every other child at school has one. And I still don't fully understand what the problem with that is. Yeah, surely they should be saying, oh, it's great. They're um, peers are reading more, so he, your child wants to read as well. That that's a good thing. Yeah, and discuss it with their friends. I I don't, I don't understand why that's a problem. 
It also makes me laugh in terms of the cover because you have all those new editions of classics, which are you know done in really beautiful covers. They've, um, I remember seeing that one of Wuthering Heights that was quite, the one. <laughs> yeah, it was all stylized and you know, and and so they're making these classic novels just as eye catching as anything for children or YA readers. So again, I'm not really sure what his point is. Well, and then yeah, you've got I, Heathcliff I digging up his, like, dead love, <laughs> crying <laughs> her name over and over again. <laughs> like, you know, that's not, um, you know, dark in any way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, well, I mean, we've covered quite a bit. So, um, Lucy, why don't you uh, throw in your questions? Um. Yeah, well, um, since we were just touching on, um, you know, uh, SFF as a, you know, as, as a, a medium that pushes boundaries, and um, I, I kind of thought, well, um, Samantha, I mean, as as a young adult author who would possibly also be accused of sensationalism uh, by this head teacher, I mean, why why did you choose SFF as a vehicle for your story? I mean, what does it give you that a more general, um, less fantastical approach um, does not? Um, I mean, I've always been most attracted to fantasy and sci-fi, and it's always appealed to me enormously as a writer, mostly because it offers such rich opportunity for world building. Um, but also, as we've discussed, because you can explore broad themes without necessarily tackling them head on in detail and specifying them for particular things that happen now. It's, it, you can hold up a mirror to the world and kind of encourage your readers to reflect on how how your world connects to the real world. But yeah, I mean, it's I, I don't think I've, I've gone into it with kind of a demonic purpose. I just really enjoy it. <laughs> building worlds and I love I just love adding rich detail to them and kind of I, th- I think especially because I write dystopia I, I it, it was interesting because I write fantasy and dystopia at the same time they're kind of doing quite separate things like fantasy is designed to take a reader out of reality while dystopia has to convince the reader that it's real enough to happen so I just I just really enjoy kind of putting those two genres together and sort of seeing what happens um, before I go into, um, you know, your portrayal of a dystopian London, um, do you want to give our listeners uh, an overview of, of the Bone Season series? Sure. Um, it's a seven book series. Um, it's They follow a young Irish woman named Paige Mahoney as she attempts to bring down a corrupt government that hunts clairvoyance. Um, it has, it's a little bit more fantastical than a lot of dystopias, which tend to lean more towards sci-fi from my experience. Um, as the corrupt government is a front for the Rephaim, which are these kind of supernatural creatures. Um, yeah, it's it's kind of it's set in multiple locations. I'm basically envisioning it as a global dystopia. So it starts out quite small, just in London and Oxford. Um, the third book has branched out to Manchester and Edinburgh. Next one's going to be in France, and it's it's basically I've it's kind of a a projection of my desire to know more about dystopias because um, often they they tend to focus just on one country and I wanted to kind of look at a dystopia on a global level so that's kind of what the Bone Season series is. 
Um, picking up on one of those dark, scary themes that um, this, this head teacher seems to want to shy away from, um, I noticed that. I mean, I, I love both of the, the first two, uh, Bone Season and the Mime Order, um, but they they're definitely definitely picking up on themes of, of discrimination um, and intolerance, which obviously, you know, very prevalent in the world today. Um, and and obviously, it's it is a book uh, for for young adults, um, and I just wondered. Um, what you'd hope that the young people would take away from from your discussion of these themes? Um, well, it's always a little bit difficult because you don't want to feel like you're preaching to a reader, and you no, don't want, no, and you don't want them to feel that you're trying to push some kind of message onto them as they read. So it has to flow naturally into the story. Um, I mean, I always I always knew that this dystopia was going to focus on Paige and her clairvoyance. And in, in the world of the bone season, she's described as an unnatural. And she's kind of treated as a second-class citizen and as dangerous. And I guess, um, you know, although I'm not trying to preach a particular message to readers, naturally discrimination is a topic that I address directly through Paige. And I guess I, I hope that the reader will sympathise with her and grow with her as a character and see how she's treated merely for being born a particular way and will just come to understand her struggle for justice. And I guess I, I would hope that they apply that to situations happening now. I mean, so many so many people are treated as other and kind of, you know, kind of thought of as being unnatural in some way. And, you know, you as as a writer, you, you can only hope that if you're talking about tolerance, that your readers do take some of that into the world. Um, you know, since we, we've touched on Paige and, and we, we are breaking the glass slipper here, um, female protagonist, um, obviously <laughs> it's great yes. to, to have a book um, that's such a strong story told from a, from a young female protagonist. Um, would you like to tell us a bit about Paige and, and also why you chose to, um, to, to basically tell your story um, through her character? Um, well, Paige, was, Paige came into my head at quite an early stage. Like when I was sitting down to write the book, um, I'd actually previously written mostly in third person, but it was, it was a first person voice that came out of me when I started writing it. And I pretty much instantly knew who this character was. And I knew that she was going to be someone who really fought hard for justice. She couldn't stand around and see injustice. Um, I was also very concerned with the bystander effect and I wanted her to be a character that always, you know, spoke up when she saw some kind of injustice being committed. Um, Paige is the character, she's 19 years old, so she's a little bit older than the, the usual YA protagonist who tends to be more like some, sort of 16 to 18 in my experience. So she's kind of on the cusp of adulthood and she's surrounded by many older characters who are all kind of trying to exert influence on her. Um, she's an Irish woman and a clairvoyant, which are two things that cause her to be discriminated against in the world of Scion. So she's kind of, um, she's, she's kind of, she wears many faces and she has many different facets of her identity. And she's, she's an amazingly fun character to write because she's just, she's becoming more and more kind of complex as her experiences build up. And um, yeah, I wanted, I just, she's always been a great kind of vehicle to tell the story through. And um, I, I like the fact that when I was 19, when I started writing the book, and so it kind of feels like her voice is maturing with mine, I guess. Uh, yeah, I was going to ask that about the fact that it's a seven book series. I mean, um, how, how much of that do you have plotted out or how much of that do you vision? Because I mean, like with, with the Harry Potter books, uh, it's such a, I mean, everyone talks about how, you know, the first three 
do seem to, well maybe th- number three is a turning point but especially the first two seem quite they're very short they're quite clearly um for children but yeah. i always i mean i'm just a huge fan of, of jk rowling anyway but i mean as as the series progresses um and, and harry grows up that of course he the books are going to get longer the more complex um i mean obviously you're in dif- a different situation in that your protagonist is already um, almost an adult um but how do you do you have um you know a, a concrete arc for for where she's going to go or is it something that you kind of have to discover as you journey through the story with her it's kind of a mix of both like um i mean i do i have the main plot points of all seven books planned out but when you actually sit down to write them it's always quite a different experience to how you envisioned it in your head I mean, the, the Song Rising, which is the third book coming out next year, um, it, it changed massively during edits. I mean, it changed almost the whole story changed completely. So it was very different to how I originally envisioned it. But Paige grew in a lot of ways I really liked, and I am glad that I took the extra time to do the rewriting. Um, yeah, she's. It's. it is always difficult because I've just sat down to start writing book four, for example. And book four is one I've envisioned for a really long time. There's some really key scenes where Paige changes as a person a lot. And it is always quite nerve wracking when you sit down to write those scenes you've been envisioning for so long. Um, so we'll, we'll see how that goes, but yeah. So I guess I guess it's it's a mixture. You have to leave some room for manoeuvre if you kind of change your mind or if the character takes you in a different direction. But I think it's also a good idea to know where you're going. So that's kind of the path I take. Thank you for listening to another episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did recording it. And thank you again to Samantha Shannon for being a wonderful guest. If you enjoyed tonight's episode, please do subscribe to the podcast. We're available on iTunes, SoundCloud and other podcasting platforms. Check back with us in two weeks for our next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper, featuring women in fantasy, science fiction and horror.